Hello, Fresh Ed listeners. I am Yvette Silova. We hope that you are enjoying this seven-part mini-series on global learning metrics. If you have liked what you've heard or want to participate in the conversation, please join us in Scottsdale, Arizona, this November 10th and 11th, when the inaugural symposium of the Comparative and International Education Society will bring together these guests and more to debate the value and purpose of global learning metrics. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details on the symposium. We really hope to see you there. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. We often think of international assessments as being synonymous with PISA, the OECD international assessment that has been the focus of many shows in Fresh Ed's mini-series on global learning metrics. But international assessments have a history far beyond PISA. In fact, it was the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement, known as the IEA, that first introduced large-scale comparative studies of educational systems worldwide in the late 1950s. This history is important to consider when thinking about global learning metrics today. My guest today is Dirk Hassett, Executive Director of the IEA. He spent many years working with the IEA, seeing the development of assessments in new subjects such as citizenship and computer literacies, and the emergence of league tables which rank education systems and have become popular today. Dirk offers valuable insights for any discussion on the feasibility or the desirability of global learning metrics. Dirk Hassett, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure for me. The history of international assessments reveals many different actors and debates about the role and purpose and presentation of assessments that we sometimes forget today. I mean, today we often talk about, you know, PISA or TIMS, but we don't remember the history of those tests and international testing in general. Can you give us a brief kind of background to the history of international assessments? Sure, Will. Uh, it's a pleasure. I, th- I think it's also very important to, to go back and, and think about what it's all about. Well, the IA's origin dates back to 1958 already, and it started as a collaborative venture between measurement scholars, educational psychologists, sociologists, and psychometricians from different countries. Um, they first gathered at the UNESCO Institute for Lifelong Learning in Hamburg, and then also in London, um, they met a couple of times. and. The idea was to exchange ideas about educational processes in order to improve educational systems. And at that time, little was known about the process of education across the world. And the founders of the IA proposed to engage in cross-national comparisons to student achievement, as they believed that the country's educational systems can better be understood when comparing educational systems of different countries. And the opinion was that surveys must take into account not only inputs, but both input and outcomes of educational processes. And outcomes were defined quite broadly as achieved knowledge, but also as attitudes and participation in education, which now is also another focus that we have in uh, developing countries. 
and their interest was to collect data that would enable to better understand educational systems and to identify relevant factors that had an impact on student learning. So the target of their analysis uh, was notably the educational system, not the individual student. And to facilitate the further cooperation of researchers, finally the AEA became a legal entity in 1967. And that's when all of this started. And, and a legal entity of, of a particular country? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, at that time, um, the researchers tried to found an umbrella organization to do international research with international um, people from around the world. And so they finally decided that this is only possible under um, the Belgium law. So it, it first was emerged as a Belgium association with board members from, from different countries, actually. Hmm. And, and you said that originally it was focused on improving education systems, not the achievement of individual students. So has that changed over time? No, not really. Um, the focus is still on the system level, um, but the focus always was on um, comparing systems and not, as we sometimes see today, um, a competition of systems, so who is first in league tables. Um, that was never the intention, and I think it sh still should not be. Um, the question was, what can we learn from other countries' practices? And in that sense, um, at that time it was unclear if cross-cultural uh, and cross-language assessments at the beginning were feasible at all. So they first conducted a study just to, to prove that this uh, kind of assessment make sense at all in general. Can you tell us a little bit about that first test? What, what exactly was uncovered and found? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the first study was a pilot 12-country study, and that was um, done in, in the 1960s, the beginning. And um, the, the subjects included uh, mathematics, reading comprehension, geography, science, and also nonverbal abilities. And the first study, however, started with mathematics because at that time the researchers also believed that the subject mathematics would be mostly language and cultural independent and consequently easiest to assess in an international study. Later on, um, the sixth subject study that was conducted in 1970 and 71 expanded also the scope to science, reading comprehension, literature education, English as a foreign language, and civic education. So you can see that um, the target was, was very broadly defined uh, in, in the beginning. And is that target still broadly defined today? Well, there are um, different um, well, uh, projections taking place. One is, um, it's always a question of what's a focus in a particular time. So, um, for example, in the 
90s and late 80s, computers and education also became a focus. So the IA um, at that time started a computers and education study, COMPAT, which was conducted in 1989 and 92 and provided data on educational use of computers. Uh, this trend also was followed later on with our um, computer information study sites and also the current International Computer Information Literacy Study. Um, and also uh, political changes in the world of the 1970s gave rise to the subject of citizenship. Uh, as a response, the IA conducted at that time the Civic Education Study, CIVET, um, and it investigated civic knowledge and engagement and policies and practices. So different, so different subjects or, or topics become of interest to, these, to the IEA depending on what's going on in the world. So today, what, what's going on in the world and, and what are the topics that are kind of trending? Well, actually, um, there's a, a little shift also in the 1990s, which uh, we sometimes call the empirical shift also. And at that time, uh, international large-scale assessments started to be used increasingly by policymakers, um, also outside the domain of education. And also at that time, an extension to more developing countries took place. Um, before, these studies were more academic studies and support from policy side was not the, that big. But at that time, this, this whole environment changed. And on one hand, this also, uh, this changed also uh, had um, a change of the focus in skills like reading and numeracy which are seen as preconditions for further learning of students. So without reading abilities, textbooks in other areas can't be read and understood. But also, economists were interested in relating educational outcomes to economic wealth. And this also resulted in a focus um, and change of interest of subjects. Um, to subjects that are useful for employability and regarded as preconditions for economic wealth. And here again, reading, um, numeracy and, and also science um, became a focus of international assessments. So it sounds like these, these assessments, they change for all sorts of reasons over time and different actors maybe get more influence inside um, the, the testing agencies and one of the one of the moments that I, you referenced earlier was when league tables came about and you were you were part of the IEA when this debate was happening can you give us a little insight about what sort of you know what were this what were the different sides of the debate to either include or exclude league tables Oh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, league tables uh, were highly debated also in the studies, and that's, most of these debates um, took place in the 1980s, actually, already, and beginning of 1990s. Um, the IA was always interested in understanding educational processes and which education system is first or second or seventh. Um, 
doesn't matter too much actually and it's also not very informative um, for most policymakers. So consequently in the early studies the IA um, produced reports and related background instruments and background information to achievement um, but did not produce leak tables. But then um, the IA realized that if they don't do it other people created leak tables and we found leak tables in magazines, newspapers and also in some academic journals but these leak tables um, were also then created in a wrong way so they were wrong so at that time... How, how were they wrong? Well we have a very complex um, system for assessing uh, the achievement for example, we use rotated booklet. That does, that means that we want to cover uh, different areas, and consequently, not all students are getting all items because then every student would have to sit down for six or ten hours to cover all the areas, which we of course do not do. Um, so that's one thing, and secondly, also we are taking a random sample of schools. And then within the schools, we are sampling one or two classrooms with students. And the researchers call this a cluster sample. And a cluster sample is um, very different psychometrically uh, from having a simple random sample. And we use different um, mathematical uh, procedures to calculate, for example, standard errors or if differences are statistically significant different. And when not considering this, you get um, wrong results and you consider uh, results different that are statistically not different. Um, so there are some um, parts that really require a good and deep understanding of the projects and its procedures. So these league tables that weren't necessarily considering all these statistical and methodological considerations as the IEA was considering, the, these league tables were basically being produced with potentially wrong information, and so the IEA decided that it needed to jump in and actually produce accurate tables? That is right. Um, so when, when we saw that uh, other people are producing, obviously, these league tables anyway, because they are of interest, um, then the IEA decided, well, if it's done, then it should be done correctly. So we decided to include this also in the reports. So over the last 30 years or so, when, when these league tables have been included in the report, what sort of effects or outcomes have you seen um, being used of these league tables? Because this is, you know, for the most part in like the popular press, we, this is what we read about. We read about which school system or country is ahead of another country. And so these league tables have really, in a way, have become the defining feature of these international assessments. Yeah, well, I think there, there, there are different components and different things that our international large-scale assessments are good for. Um, on one hand, of course, these international large-scale assessment describes the status quo in terms of how educational practice in a country is, is conducted. And this helps researchers and policymakers to compare their country to other countries. And then there's a comparative uh, perspective, so identifying differences in ways in which education is organized and practiced across cultures and societies. Um, 
then this gives you an understanding of, of where you are actually. Um, secondly, I think international assessments like our trends in international mathematics and science study TIMS or the progress in international reading literacy study PEARLS or the ICILS study and the civic and citizenship education study that I mentioned, they are measuring trends. And this helps policymakers and researchers to understand changes in educational outcomes and processes, also in comparison to other countries' development. And especially when curricular or educational policies are changed, it is important to monitor changes. Um, imagine a captain of a big ship on the ocean. Uh, which captain would not look at his instruments or look outside the window to see where his ship is heading to? And I think there is also the value of maybe also the leak tables, if you take them uh, and interpret them correctly in its context, and also looking at trends over time. So looking at these trends and monitoring and, and, and describing the status quo, have these um, helped policymakers, do you think? Oh, sure. Um, I think policymakers have... Um, also had different impacts, um, have seen different impacts from these studies, actually. And it depends very much on the country itself, actually. Since we are research organizations, we are conducting these studies, and we also help countries understanding and interpreting the data. But we do not give any policy recommendations uh, from our side. But we help the countries to do that. And the focus in different countries is very different. Uh, we have some countries which, even before the actual assessment start, when we look at the curriculum, um, they realize that their curriculum um, is not in line too much with other countries' curricula in terms of curriculum expectations. So some countries, when they looked at this, changed the curriculum expectations and have now higher expectations for the students um, to be also international comparable. Other um, countries looked at different subpopulations. Um, for example, immigrants, or they looked at boy-girl differences. So there is a lot of questions around equity in, in education. And policymakers, after looking at the results, um, took measures to provide more equal learning opportunities to students. Um, one example that, that we can see is that there was always a discussion about differences of boys and girls in mathematics and science in particular. And um, 20 years ago, in most countries, um, boys were performing much better than girls, actually. Um, so researchers and policymakers ask, is this a natural given um, that boys are better in these areas? And actually, it is not. Uh, but it depends very much on motivation and how, what are the um, textbooks and what are the examples that are used in textbooks? Are they also engaging for girls? So in a lot of countries there is now a shift also to have more relevant and interesting uh, materials um, that also engage students, uh, girls, more 
in science and mathematics education with the outcome that um, now the girls are doing as good as boys in most countries and in a lot of countries um, girls are even outperforming the, uh, the boys in mathematics and science. So there's a lot of different conclusions that policymakers have drawn from looking at the results of these international large-scale assessments like the AA studies. Are, or have there ever been any misuses of um, or by policymakers of large-scale international assessments? Uh, misuses? Well, I think um, it's not only maybe a question of misuses, misusing the data, but maybe also misunderstanding um, the data. Um, what we do is we do statistically analysis um, and there's always a certain error margin around it. So coming back to this leak tables uh, again, uh, one, some, well, some of the misunderstandings about around these leak tables um, by policymakers or also the general public are that if a country is one score point better on a scale of with a mean of 500 and a standard deviation of 100 it is better but we always have a measurement error and a sampling error around it so there's some variance around it um, so if one country's uh, achievement is one score uh, point better than another one or if one country's achievement increased by one score point um, that doesn't mean anything actually, but it might just be a question of the error term around it. So actually no change has happened, but um, it appears as if there would be an increase. Um, but this is statistically not significant and consequently there are some misinterpretations of these results if you look only at leak tables. So in your experience, how many policymakers actually understand the statistics behind these studies? Well, probably not many policymakers. <laughs> and actually, I don't think it's, it's something that they need to understand, actually. Uh, but I think it's, it's um, also something that researchers in the, in the field have to explain to policymakers. And this is probably one of the crucial aspects, the communication between researchers and policymakers. Um, policymakers have their perspective and they want to have a clear and straight answer. Um, but educational systems are quite complex. And if you look at the outcome of these studies and what researchers think about it, um, their answer is usually not that simple. And simplifying the results of educational um, studies uh, in a way that it's not over-interpreting the results of these studies um, is, is very difficult and challenging. So I think we need more and more to pay attention about uh, how to communicate results and a good communication between researchers who have their technical terms and policymakers and the general public. But, but of course, there, we also have to be realistic that policymakers are, are navigating domestic politics and may use these international assessments 
to further their own interests, even if it, like the they use a finding in a wrong way or something like that. Like that will happen, and, and I think many researchers have shown that 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 happens. Um, I think you're right. There's there's also maybe some some misuse from policymaker side. Um, but my experience actually is that this happens sometimes um, in a way that, that um, policymakers want to look good from the outside. So they, they want to have good results for uh, their educational systems, which I think is, is very natural. Everyone wants to have good results from the work that you do. Um, but I think when it comes to making use of the results, um, there's a strong focus um, from a lot of policymakers that they really want to improve their system. And this can be only done if you really interpret the results correctly. Um, so maneuvering blind and pretending you're good um, might be good for that day if there's the day of election. But in a long-term process, you need to, to understand the educational system. And I think this is also what policymakers understand, that they use the data, and we call it data-driven policies, to look what are the strengths and weaknesses of their systems, and then by that also try to improve their systems. And if you look at policies today, they really make use of the data with the aim to improve educational systems. And this is, I think, what policymakers are mostly doing. I, what I find so interesting about the IEA and the history that you've, you've recounted is that in the beginning in 1958, doing these cross-national assessments was very much an academic pursuit. You know, is it possible? Um, can we statistically uh, compare country education systems in different countries? And it seems um, over time it's shifted to being not only an academic pursuit, but also very much uh, an issue of policy. And it, it seems like the role of the IEA, in a, in a way, has slightly changed. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's a good point, I think. Um, I don't know if the role of IEA has changed, but it's clear that um, we have uh, members, member institutions, and these member institutions are sometimes research institutes from different countries, and we have member institutions from more than 60 countries. Um, but it's also people from ministries of education or um, institutes that are connected to the, directly to the ministries of education. And surely they want to learn um, which policies uh, can help improving achievement in their countries, which is very different from maybe the researcher's point who for purely academic um, intents have want to understand how educational processes are working and, and to understand these processes more in depth. It's also interesting that, you know, originally the test was... Um, mathematics was the subject uh, because, as you said, it was, in a sense, easier to control for context and, and local variation um, and language variation, for that matter, um, around the world. 
But today, you've now talked all about all these different subject areas that are tested. How has the issue of context and variation been controlled in these various tests? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, what we are using in IA is we are looking at what we call the curriculum model. So we are looking at the intended curriculum in, in, in the different countries. Um, so what they have written as policy documents, what should be taught in schools and what are the aims. Then we look at the implemented curriculum. So what teachers are actually doing in the different countries. And finally, we look at the attained curriculum. So what have students learned? And this is what we measure um, with our assessments. Um, but there are also these, these other fields like the intended and implemented curriculum. And we look at these, this whole process. And of course, um, when curricula are changing in participating countries, um, then also there is a slight shift in what we are measuring in our international assessment. And I think what's also very important is, is to understand that in these studies, we are not only having an assessment, uh, but we also have a huge amount of background variables. So when we are uh, doing one of these assessments, we are looking at system level information, so the curriculum and other relevant information. We have a questionnaire to the school principals um, of the schools where the students are in um, about how uh, education is organized, um, what's the school size and background instruments on that. We have questionnaires to the teachers of the actual students so that we can directly relate um, teachers' attitudes, perceptions and background to student achievement. And then we also have background questionnaires for all the students. And in grade four, we also have questionnaires to the students' uh, parents. So we have a huge amount of background information to analyze uh, what are the factors related to student outcome. And outcome are still not only achievement, um, but also no opinions, uh, self-confidence, um, etc. And and this wide range of measures is allows uh, IEA or or the the test to compare across nations and account for the cultural variation. Um, well, the the cross country cultural comparisons are of course always um, challenging. Um, education always takes place um, in a different culture, in different societies, with a history and with a background. Uh, but what we can see is that there are a lot of similarities across countries, uh, sometimes more than you would expect at the first glance. Um, let me uh, cite one of the results from one of our recent studies, which was the comp uh, Computer Information Literacy Study, ICILS, um, where we looked at what matters most for um, the usage of computers 
and computer information literacy of the students. And we had 22 educational systems um, taking part in that study. And we found that in all these educational systems, um, the, the crucial points were the teachers and the teacher education and what they think about computers and if they want to uh, use computers and how self-confident they were in using computers in their teaching. And that was the same across all the 22 different educational systems. And we had participants from Europe, from Latin America, from Asia, so from more or less all around the world. And you see that you find the same patterns across different cultures, uh, which was a surprise to us, um, but also probably uh, to a lot of countries, because we often hear that, well, our educational system is, is very different and, and we have a problem in our country uh, that's probably very unique. And when you look at these international assessments, you can see um, that a lot of countries are facing very similar problems. So you've been involved with the IEA for, for quite some time, and you've mentioned all of these different shifts that have happened. So in the 1970s, the focus uh, became citizenship, and in the 1980s, it became computers, and in the 1990s, you talked about this empirical shift. I wanted to see, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves, like, do you see any shifts occurring now, or, or do, you, do you envision any future shifts about what the focus uh, will be for these international assessments? Um, well, on one thing hand, I think that um, the, the current process will continue. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think a huge influence currently uh, is with the UN and the Declaration for the Sustainable Development Goals, where the UN Declaration set under uh, Target 4 um, is concerning with education. So there's also um, in all member countries of the UN, which means mostly all, all the world, there's a common agreement that education plays a more and more important role. And when we look at the uh, target four of the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, one is universal um, primary and, and more and more secondary education. Um, and here I see, for example, also a shift um, on the UN side, which before looked mostly on enrollment rates, now also target um, minimum standards of outcomes in uh, literacy and numeracy for all countries. So I see that there will be an expansion also to more um, developing countries, but still with a focus on numeracy and literacy abilities. Um, but under the target 4.7, it also targets, for example, global citizenship and uh, sustainable development. So it's also seen that this is um, an increasingly important aspect um, which we see. And I think that's a very, very important thing to understand that education is not only um, 
with a means of education, educating the future workforce, but education is, is much broader and also helps us um, to live together in, in, in peace and to also understand the needs uh, for future generations. And there I see also a shift on at looking also at global citizenship competencies around the world. Well, Dirk Hassett, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to me. Dirk Hassett is the executive director of the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement. He will present some of the ideas discussed today at the CIES Symposium in November. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.